Hey everyone, welcome to the Obiter Podcast. I'm Pat Clancy. And I'm Melissa Wan. And this is episode one of the Lawyer Series. In this series, we sit down with lawyers at Mackenzie Lake to discuss their career, personal life, and anything in between, all in an effort to introduce our listeners to the human being behind the lawyer. Today we're joined by Mike Peerless, affectionately known by his Instagram and Twitter followers as at PirateMike911. Mike and his team joined Mackenzie Lake in 2014. Since that time, Mike has led the firm's class actions group and has recently assumed the role of managing partner. It's not a stretch to say that Mike laid the groundwork for Canadian class proceedings as we know them today. He orchestrated the first ever class action to be certified in Canada, a case against a multinational corporation called Dow Corning for defective breast implants. He's since been involved in some of the most prominent class proceedings against pharmaceutical companies, motor vehicle manufacturers, governments, and educational institutions. He's had quite the career, but he's also a down-to-earth guy who has a ton of great stories and a lot of interest outside the law. Mike, can you start us off by telling us about what you do and what exactly a class action is for those who may not be familiar? Since 1993, when I was called, my practice has been almost entirely restricted to uh, class actions. 80% probably on behalf of plaintiffs or classes. And so I I litigate a a wide variety of kinds of disputes between groups of people and entities or governments who who have harmed those groups of people. So, you know, my practice has been, uh, a lot of it has involved medical products or pharmaceutical products. Because if you think about it, they're the kinds of things that if, if, a, if a drug turns out to be defective and, and injures someone, a drug often is sold to large numbers of people. It probably injures large numbers of people. And so I would sue on behalf of that group of people. And I've sued lots of governments because, again, a government action that's un, unlawful in a, in a way that can be sued for often affects large numbers of people. And so what class actions do is allow those large numbers of people to get together uh, and sue in one lawsuit. So that's what class actions are, and, and that's really really all I've done with a few small exceptions. Mike, for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain the certification process? Sure. There's a sort of a preliminary threshold that you can't just start a class action. You have to ask a judge to make your case into a class action. And so what that involves is bringing some evidence, some, some evidence and some legal arguments to bear, going to a court and saying, look, here's why this is a class action. You know, this client of mine or this group of clients of mine were all injured by Vioxx, say, in case I, I, I actually did. These clients were injured by Vioxx, but also another few thousand people had the same injury from Vioxx in Canada. And so what I want to do your honor, is I want to make this case into a class action so that all 2,000 of those people who were injured with, who took Vioxx can sue together, take on uh, Merck, big multi, uh, multinational pharmaceutical company, but take it on in one group so that they can spread out the risks and the expenses 
and and ultimately you know have a chance to as i said earlier level the playing field against that massive corporate defendant that has unlimited money to fight one of the considerations that you must have to think about early on in the process is whether whether a proceeding is financially viable both for the class and for counsel what goes into that determination yeah that's a great question because most of the time i get paid almost always i get paid on a contingent fee basis so the advantage of that from my point of view and from the client's point of view are are are, are that we're first of all we're in perfect alignment on our interests because you don't get paid if they don't get paid and, and so, and, and the more money I get for my clients, the more money I get for me. So we all have the same thing in mind. It's, uh, you know, I would say sometimes the, the defense lawyers who get paid by the hour, usually you get the feeling like, you know, occasionally at least you get the feeling like, you know, they don't really want this case to end because they are charging a lot for it and they're doing good work. And if they tell their client, look, we think we're going to win this case. We should keep fighting, and that's going to save you $10 million. You know, as long as that's reasonable, that, that might be a pretty smart thing to do, uh, rather than just say, look, maybe we can resolve it for cheap, and, and then we're not being paid anymore. So in my case, I'm all, almost always perfectly aligned. But, but the, the basic approach that, that, I, that I've had and that we try to take on all these cases is sort of my motto, which is maximum havoc make it painful for the defendant as painful as you can so that they want to talk to you about a sensible resolution instead of going to trial and appeal and all that so that's what we do how did you get into it you know how how did you find yourself in class actions uh from the outset well like um many other things um circumstance of being in the right place at the right time i was an articling student in the fall of 1992 and I was doing my bar admission course and at the same time working part-time at the law firm I was at and the thing I was doing as I was working part-time much of the time was taking intake calls for new cases and I was I was interested in litigation so I was doing uh, a lot of the intake litigation cases and uh, a young woman came in to see us and I met her and she, she had had breast implants that had ruptured in her body. It had to be removed surgically. And she thought it was a surgical problem and wanted to know if we would sue her plastic surgeon. We certainly were doing medical malpractice cases and, and th- th- I thought it was an interesting case. Uh, her fact pattern was quite interesting. So I uh, got her permission, ordered her medical records, uh, which I reviewed and then I reviewed by sending to a plastic surgeon I knew and said to him, what do you think? And he said, well, there's nothing wrong with the surgery that I can see from these records, but you know, these implants, they rupture all the time. Like this is very common. And those um, were silicone implants, right? They were silicone gel implants made by a company called Dow Corning. They, right around then, those implants got recalled. They were, it was made illegal to put new ones in, and there was a warning sent out to surgeons who had put them in. And that was in um, November. Like Health Canada had sent out that warning? Health or? Canada, yep. Yeah. And that was in November of 1992. So uh, I happened to know, along with a, f- a, f- a colleague of mine, so I was an articling student. My colleague was uh, just finishing his uh, first year of practice at that point. But the two of us had talked a little bit about class actions 
because just on an academic level, it had seemed to be interesting. And we knew that the Class Proceedings Act was coming into force on January 1st, 1993. So that would have been the first time that class actions were possible in Canada. So we, we went to our mentor and said, this might be a class action. And he, he's a really good guy and a great lawyer, but was like, nah, I don't know, that's not really the kind of thing we probably want to get into. So we went back and forth and tried to talk him into it for about a month until um, January. The act was proclaimed in force in January of 1993. And were you, sorry, were you a lawyer at that point or still articling? Still articling. My, um, but my colleague was a lawyer um, and good friend was a lawyer. And so eventually I went to his office and said, you are a lawyer. I think we should just start this case. And then Scott, our mentor. The hell with it. Well, <laughs> it was more like we know Scott and he'll be on board. He, He's a guy who embraces complicated things and he won't be mad at us, but we'll ask for forgiveness right. instead of permission. <laughs> so, so that's what we did. So we issued that claim on February 1st, 1993. I was called to the bar on February 8th, 1993. And we certified that case as the first class action in Canada in June and then won the appeal in October and uh, settled it in about 18 months later for about $30 million for Canadians. So it was pretty, pretty worked out okay. Pretty significant, yeah. yeah. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was already a parallel, there was already a U.S. class action against Dow Corning. Is that right? There, there was. Now, in those days, it was you know before the internet and things, but I found out by phoning around that the case was headquartered out of the Eastern District of Ohio in Cincinnati. So I drove to Cincinnati to search the court file to see what I could find, and I got all the pleadings from that file. So that would have been between beginning of February and, and, and a few months later when we had the motion, and, I, and including we got all the affidavits that had been filed and deposition transcripts and things like that, which were certainly available, but um, it, it's about a seven hour and 10 minute drive to Cincinnati. I know that because I did that drive quite a few times um, for, for that. Uh, kind of leads to my next question is, based on the timeline, the Class Actions Proceeding Act was just enacted. We as lawyers heavily rely on precedents. I can't imagine there was any precedence at that time. You know, how did you how did you know how to go about putting together a motion record or your pleadings? Like, were you looking at the, you know, were you relying on the U.S. file to do that? Well, at first, we, we, we weren't. We certainly moved to that. We certainly moved to that as the, as the process went on uh, because we got more and more information from the U.S., but to a large extent, we, we kind of invented it. You know, for example, one of the tests for a class proceedings for a class proceeding is that the plaintiff must produce a plan for proceeding with the case. It's sort of a throwaway sentence in the act. And like I literally sat at my desk and said, I wonder what a plan for a proceeding <laughs> would be. So I kind of wrote something out and I called it plan for proceeding. Well, every single class action in Canada now uses that format and basically does wrote rates what I did. By cha- and changes the dates. <laughs> so was that what they had in mind when they drafted the thing? I, I don't really know, but <laughs> that's how it works out. Works out yeah. So were U.S. counsel helpful at all in that process? No. Or no? No, because f- for a variety of reasons, although uh, I can tell some funny stories about U.S. counsel and, and the extent that we ultimately made great relationships with some of those counsel and, 
and that was very helpful for future cases. But for the most part, they were just very suspicious. Like, first of all, we were, I mean, we were so junior and knew so little about what we were talking about, and they just didn't know us. And they'd never heard of a case in class in Canada. They'd never heard of Canada. No, <laughs> some of them. That's true. I'm just kidding. It, well, I will no, tell you this, this: the firm was not super keen on this either. Other than our mentor, who was fully keen, ultimately he be, became fully on Very board. Very invested. Yeah. But the firm wasn't super keen, and and so we we weren't really getting any really much help. And the firm didn't certainly didn't like spending any money on it. So. The firm was used to spend giving money for things like uh, mileage to drive your car somewhere. So we we found out that there was a plaintiff's hearing and conference in New York City two weeks before our certification motion was scheduled to go. And so we thought, well, maybe we should go try to talk to those American lawyers and see if we can get any pointers or tips. So my, my friend Mike and I, um, got in his 20-year-old K car, drove to the Buffalo airport, got super cheap flights to New York City, on our own, which we paid for with our own money. I was making $22,000 wow. a year. Flew to New York, shared a hotel room at the hotel that the, that the conference was in. I do remember that we looked at the room service menu when we got there and were so shocked that we walked for about 40 blocks till we could find somewhere we could afford to eat. A McDonald's. Pretty much. <laughs> but the next morning we went and tried to go to the meeting and they wouldn't let us in because they said we didn't, we didn't know us. So we were very frustrated. We walked around all day trying to think of other ways. And then we went back to the restaurant, to the hotel, and we saw all these guys sitting in the bar. So then we said, okay. You guys, were you guys old enough to drink at that point? We were. Barely. <laughs> we barely. No, no. I, 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 went to, I went to law school a bit later, so okay. I was plenty old enough. All right. But, but I went, we, so we went into the bar, and we went up to these, the same group of people and said, hey, like, can we at least sit down and have a beer with you guys? We can't go to the meeting. And ultimately kind of struck up a bit of a relationship. Some of that has turned into friendship. Some of those guys I still talk to today. Um, they're all retired, but I still talk to them from time to time. And um, they, they then were quite helpful. And they were helpful later, after we got it certified, they were helpful making introductions to the right U.S. defense lawyers to start talking to about settling the case. Because the Canadian defense lawyers didn't know anything about it and certainly weren't interested in settling. But that when the American cases started to settle, then the companies were like, well, they they want to get they want to buy peace, not more litigation somewhere else. So they just we ended up doing that. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was uh, it was interesting. It was difficult. Again, though, it was being in the right place at the right time. It was that's yeah. what was important. So, Mike, what or who is the big bamboo? <laughs> the big bamboo. <laughs> so, um, the big bamboo it was the nickname of a guy named whose real name is Danny Becknell. Danny Becknell was a, is a larger-than-life, like seriously larger-than-life caricature <laughs> of a litigation lawyer from Louisiana, New Orleans. He's, he's widely considered to be the model for several John Grisham characters, and he's been disbarred numerous times uh, and then reinstated. He's, uh, he's been to jail for bribing a judge and then put right back. Again, we're talking Louisiana here. So I had no idea who he was, but we were at a plaintiff steering committee meeting at the 
Tutwiler Hotel in Birmingham, Alabama, which is a nice hotel, very nice hotel. And this was years, this would have been three or four years after we did the first case. You know, by this time, I was allowed in the meetings and... And so, sorry, just to, just to, the original case led to further breast implant class action cases. It did. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And I was do I, I did breast implant cases for 10 years probably okay. after that first one. And so, so anyway, we're at a meeting about this. And at, by this point, you know, I owned a, like a pretty good suit and things like that. So, <laughs> so we're, I was at this the hearing during the day and at a meeting in the afternoon and the early evening. And then, and then at a cocktail party at the, in the lobby hotel, uh, bar of this, this hotel, and there might've been 30 or 40, maybe 50 lawyers there, most of whom were middle-aged white guys, including, I guess, me by that point. I would have been in my early 30s anyway. <laughs> but there were a few uh, younger lawyers, ma- male and female, and a few uh, younger paralegals too, uh, b- also male and female. And par- so partly it turned out the reason there were some of these younger lawyers is that there was something called a, a common fund that was created in these cases for legal fees. Mm. And some of the lawyers, including Danny Becknell, had bamboo. In, the big bamboo, <laughs> had, had invented a system for getting paid a lot of money out of that common fund. And that was what, because, and he explained this to me in the bar, he said, you got to, y'all Canadians got to start doing what we do. You got to <laughs> munchkinize. <laughs> and like munchkinize, you go, yeah, hire munchkins. Put <laughs> juniors on your cases and have them do work, real work, but then mock them up. So he said, all these juniors here, they are my munchkins. <laughs> so they had come from New Orleans, it turned out, to Birmingham, Alabama, which is a, you know, not an outrageous distance, but he had brought them in buses, and they worked in the bus looking at documents, and then they came to the hearing and sat there and listened and took notes, and then they went, then they, and they, they were spending a week in a motel that he had rented for them while they worked. And then there, there was a couple days of these hearings, and then he was taking them back. And he goes, I pay these people $25 an hour, and I charge them out at 400 <laughs> And a case of beer. <laughs> right, and, 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 and the bus ride. So anyway, so I, I, I mean, it was, to me, it was like, okay, this is A, it's a bit crazy, but I sort of what lawyers do, I guess. Yeah. Calling it that telling somebody doesn't know that it, that's what he's doing to kind of cheat a federal judge oh boy. seems kind of crazy and, and so anyway this cocktail party went on for a while and then he got some news i never did find out what that news was good news and he said he said okay um, all the drinks for the rest of the night are on me anything <laughs> so so anyway he was he was pretty drunk and so but i happened to be <laughs> near him and he was about i would have said he was 60 at the time and um pretty good looking guy you know well-dressed and slick like very slick like very you know not slick co- greasy you know <laughs> it's a fine no, I'm just it's kidding. a fine line <laughs> um but but uh, he was when he was when, once he started to celebrate he was you know finding the youngest women and putting his arms around them and calling them honey and sugar oh and things like that now this was 20 years ago, I, at the time, thought it was highly inappropriate. Right. But, you know, 60-year-old, 20 years ago, uh, you know. Yeah. Things the, were different. In the South. In the it South. It was a bit, it was a cultural experience, put sure. it that way, for me. So, anyway, at, at, at a certain point, 
people are drinking. I personally was drinking Dom Perignon because he said <laughs> he was paid for everything. So that's what I started ordering. Right. And, um, and people were drinking more expensive things than that. And then he, 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 somebody went up to him and said, somebody else, I was near him though, and said, so why is your nickname the Big Bamboo? And he said, I am called the Big Bamboo because I have had many, many, many wives, girlfriends, lovers, and paid escorts. <laughs> many. And I have never had a complaint about the size of my equipment. <laughs> <laughs> the Big Bamboo. There you go. There you have it. There's where the, the Big Bamboo. So, Mike, on a bit more serious note, uh, in a later case that followed the Dow Jones case, you found yourself in New York City at a pretty historic time. Can you tell us that story? The very last one of those meetings I attended was in August of 2001, uh, and that was the that was the uh, the case that happened in it was in New York. Um, the hearing was in the, the main New York courthouse, federal courthouse, and then the cocktail party was at Windows on the World on the top floor of the World Trade Center. And um, about a month later, as I was on my way into New York for another meeting on a different case, I was on the last flight that landed at LaGuardia before the, before the second plane hit. And um, I ended up stranded in New York for 10 days, we're not, weren't able to leave. And I watched the towers fall. And Get out. Spent, from where? Uh, from downtown. like Ground from, zero, basically. From within, well, well what's close as you could be, like fi- I was 15 blocks away when Tower Two fell, the first one to fall, wow. and I was at this. I, I was evacuating when the second one fell. And was the I, debris like? Were you at the point in the street where there was, you know, you could see debris? Couldn't see debris, but I had, I, you know, I was covered in ash oh, within ash. half okay. an hour. And I, like many other people who were in New York that night, um, spent the whole night standing in line to give blood at at, uh, at a hospital, which they ultimately didn't need, of course, because there were essentially no injuries. But that's not what they had thought at the beginning. But I had been in those buildings many times working on that case. So we've talked quite a bit about your professional life at this point, and thank you for that. What do you do? What do you do outside of the office? For the last twenty years or so, I guess. Um, by the time I turned about, f- well, by the time I turned forty, I had been kind of doing nothing but work for ten years, and I couldn't help noticing that that um, hadn't been probably that good for me. That was right around the same time as uh, 9-11. And I weighed uh, over 250 pounds. Um, didn't really do anything except work. And um, my, my wife and a couple of my friends were training to run the Chicago Marathon. And um, they, uh, they'd been doing a bunch, a bunch of running, of course. And they'd been running you know, for months uh, to get ready for it. And um, I had been... my contribution to that had been to watch the kids and they were going for their last what they call long run before the marathon on on I think it was Labor Day weekend and um, we went to a friend's cottage another guy who was running the marathon with a big group of people there were about 10 of them who were running the marathon and um, we went to that guy's cottage for the weekend he happened to also be my family doctor and they, they, uh, they were going to go for their long run. I was watching the kids, which was maybe 10 kids. I don't even like kids very much. But, <laughs> um, but, I, but that was my job. So that was what I was doing. And off they went for the run. And they got about two hours into it. I think it was going to be a three-hour run. And um, they came back 
uh, because there was a big thunderstorm happening and they all came back and it went on and on and on so they, they just gave up and said well that was long enough so they all had showers there was only one shower at the cottage the cottage was my friends the doctor who who was also the most serious runner by the time everybody else had had a shower because he let them go first the weather cleared up so he said oh, I think I'm going to go do my last hour of my run again he was the most serious runner and he and then he said Mike you should come with me and Everybody, including me, and like the small children, laughed <laughs> because that was ridiculous that they even think about even it. Even the small children. <laughs> the small children They laughed. even knew. Yeah. He, so he, he said, well, I'm, I'm really not kidding, Mike. It's either that or die. So when your doctor says that to you, I said, well, th- I, even then I said, well, I don't have any, any uh, running shoes because I never really owned a pair of real running shoes. And he goes, I probably have... 15 pairs of size 10 or 10 and a half running shoes back in the mud room there you can borrow any pair that you can get on your feet so well, i don't have a pair of running shorts and he said well there i can't help you no one makes running shorts in your size <laughs> oh wow so in my in my cotton t-shirt and borrowed running shoes and khaki shorts i went out and ran 10k which took me two hours and 20 minutes and I felt terrible, and mostly it was walking. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was stupid. And six weeks later, I ran the Chicago Marathon. So, because I kind at of what weight? I, I was probably down about twenty pounds. So you ran it at about two thirty. About two thirty. Yeah. Four hours and thirty-one minutes, which is not a fast marathon. No. But it's a lot faster than two twenty for ten k. And if you run a big enough big city marathon, there's 30,000 people. I finished 10,000th. So, <laughs> yeah. And you've run, I assume you've run a lot more marathons since then. And have you got into anything else? Yeah. So since, so it was, it was kind of addictive as, as running is. And I've since then run about another 20 standalone marathons, um, including New York and um, Boston a few times. And, um, you know, I got, I never got fast, but I got fast enough to run the Boston Marathon. Yeah. And then I got into um, doing triathlons because I preferred cycling to running, really, in terms of road running, marathon training. It just sort of feels like it's hard on your body, and I like cycling. So got into cycling, did a bunch of triathlons. Um, I've done 11 Ironman triathlons now. An um, Ironman, sorry, I don't do Ironmans. What does an Ironman entail again? So that's a... F- four-kilometer swim, 180-kilometer bike ride, and then run a marathon. And how long does that take? So my fastest ones at that are about 11 hours. So, yeah, so... Um, and where where have you done those? So I've done those... What's the most grueling one you've done? The most grueling... The two most grueling ones are um, in were in Texas, where it was extremely hot, like well over 110. <laughs> So that makes it hard to, to run a marathon because you're always running it in the heat of the day because they start, you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning. And by the time you've done all those other things, it's, you know, one or something. Yes. And, and the one in Kona, the World Championships, that's very hot and hilly and humid and windy and things too. So those are probably the two toughest ones. But they're all tough. The suffering is why you do it. It's the fun part. You mentioned Kona. Is that, is that what makes you a Kona-file? That is well. That's that's why I first went to to Kona, to the Big Island of Hawaii. And sorry, I'm calling you a Kona file because I, I checked your Twitter and you have on there that you are a Kona file. Right, and and because I, and after, after being in Kona uh, for the first time in 2003 to do the Ironman World Championships, 
my my wife and I and I guess our kids kind of fell in love with Hawaii and said to ourselves if one one day we'd love to be able to you know well first of all we'd like to come back and one day it'd be great to you know come back you know on a regular basis and then we were lucky enough to to be able to purchase a, a house in Hawaii a few years later and so we go to we, we do go to Hawaii a lot and uh, done the, done lots of racing in Hawaii but also just like to go to Hawaii if I can. And Mike you're an avid sailor as well aren't you? I was a very avid sailor, and I will say my wife gets seasick and doesn't really like sailing, so she hasn't really ever gotten into it. So we've kind of, as a family, we haven't done much of it, but I used to do a lot of sailboat racing. I was on the national sailing team for a while. I've raced all over the world, uh, raced across lots of oceans. I've got a friend right now who's doing the Vendee Globe single-handed around the world race. So, yeah, I, I, I... I think that actually helped me when it came to things like marathons because I used to do lots of long-distance offshore sailing, which is kind of a mind game because you don't really see anything. It's It goes on for a long time, sometimes days or weeks. Marathoning, long-distance triathlons, that kind of thing, it's kind of similar. But, yeah, I, I, I love sailing, and I, I used to do a lot of it. Occasionally, I still do some because one of my brothers lives in uh, Houston, which is on the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico, and he has a few sailboats and he does some racing. So I sometimes go down and race with him. And occasionally, I get a call to go and do some sailboat racing somewhere else too. So every once in a while. So you like to go fast on the water? Do you like to go fast on the road? Well, it would be I would never break the law. <laughs> Going fast on the road is could, could be. I mean, what kind of, of the Highway <laughs> Traffic Act? You drive a uh, Honda Civic, don't you? <laughs> I drive a Honda pickup truck much of the time. <laughs> but, what what uh, kind of vehicles do you like to go fast in? So I, I do like to go fast, and I, do, and, I, and I do spend quite a bit of time on the track in cars. So I, I, I happen to ha- have a Porsche 911 GT3, which is a great car to be able to drive you know, on the road, but also take to the track. Um, it has a cage and harnesses. And, really? And I, and I have, you know. What ha- tracks do you take it out to? So we're lucky here in London to have a very good track road course close by at Grand Bend. Great, great road course right there. Uh, I've driven, I've driven 911s at Delaware Speedway on the quarter mile oval, um, and I've driven stock cars there too, lots of times. Cool. Occasionally race them. Then I go to Shannonville, and Mossport, and uh, Mont Tremblant, and um, Sebring. Nice. Uh, in Florida and Daytona. Yeah. Um, D- did you travel somewhere to pick that car up? Like, I did. I picked that car up in Germany at the factory in Leipzig. I drove it on the track uh, in Leipzig, and then drove it to Belgium and drove it on at Spa on the Formula One course for okay. a day. Did uh, you drive on the autobahn? I did drive on the autobahn. I did go fast. I go. I went faster on the autobahn than I went uh, than I've been able to go on the track. Even because even it was legal. Because it was legal. Because it was legal. Of That's right. Yeah, so so yeah, th- three hundred and thirty-seven kilometers an hour. You don't, you probably don't want to go faster than that. No, no thanks. If something bad happens. <laughs> it's probably going to be real bad. I was nervous when they increased the <laughs> the maximum speed on the four hundred two to one ten. So uh. <laughs> usually, on, in a in a good car, the straight fast parts are the part you relax, take your hands off the wheel. It's the it's the scary f- corners. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mike, you've just settled into the role of managing partner of our firm, and you have a bit of a background in, uh, in law firm management with your previous firm. What do you think is the most challenging part of managing a firm? 
Well, you know, I think like anyone who's the managing partner of a law firm, there's only one real, two real reasons to do it. That's to um, reward my friends and punish my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, that's not really the reason. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the difficult part is balancing the interests, I think. Um, you know, and I, th I don't think that's difficult here really, but it's the most, the most difficult thing, that, that there, are, there are legitimate interests that are, that are conflicting or at least are butting against each other between, uh, you know, making this a good place to work, being good members of the community, supporting charities, paying people fairly or, or better than fairly making sure the workplace is healthy and fun and all that. And so coming up with that balance is, is the tricky part. Um, I'm certainly not, it's certainly not my goal as managing partner to shake things up or make, make big changes. I think it's a great place. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not here to do a turnaround. I'm just here to, you know, hold the line and, and, uh, and uh, try to live up to the great management that, uh, that the firm's been enjoying over the last, uh, well, the whole time I've been here anyway. Mike, uh, that's awesome. Thanks so much for sitting down with us and, and talking to us today. Hey, thanks for doing this. This is great.